Welcome to Pursue Ministries. You're listening to Men's Fraternity, Session 7, Depravity Wound. The speaker is Bill Howard. Um, okay, well, let's jump into this uh, wound because this is the mother of all wounds. If I can say this, it's not the mother wound, this is the wound. Uh, because this is the wound where all the rest really come as a result of this wound. Uh, this is the chief cause of why we do what we do and ultimately why we are the way we are. And uh, ultimately this wound is the wound that will keep you out of heaven. Uh, what's not going to keep you out of heaven is the fact that perhaps you had a bad dad or a bad mom or you didn't have friends or a mentor. Uh, that's not going to keep you out of heaven. But this one will, as we'll discover this particular wound. And this is called the depravity wound. So, let's take a look at that. Uh, since 1970, in our culture, 70% of Americans think we're severely off track. Since 1970, violent crime is up 560%. Uh, illegitimate births are up 400%. The average SAT scores have dropped 75 points since 1970. Uh, novelist John Updike said, the fact that we still can live well cannot ease the pain in America of the feeling that we can no longer live nobly. Don't you feel that a little bit? Things are kind of getting out of control. Don't you sense it just in our culture and and uh, in the prosperity that we, that we possess that there's a part of that that it's not helping people live better. It may help them live more financial be- financially better, but not more noble. All you got to do is turn on the TV and see that, right? Look on the internet. And so we've got this uh, modern view out there then, and this is the modern view, and that is that this modern philosophical view is that people, the nature of man, we are all by birth inherently good. You ever hear that? You hear it on the media, you hear it uh, when something bad happens, when Columbine happens, you know. How could these good boys otherwise start doing bad things? What's the problem? You hear that a lot. And so the question in our culture is, okay, if people really have good hearts, why do we do bad things? <laughs> right? And that's the, that's the question that culture is always confronted with. And so we're going to give you here, if you look at your notes, if we're born to win, if, if we take the modern philosophy that man is inherently good, then why are we losing? I'll give you five half-truths of why today we're losing. Five surface issues that really never get to the root of why we're losing. Okay? Number one here, point A says, there the world and the culture says, it's because of a poor self-esteem. The reason why you as a good guy are having a hard time is because you've had a bad upbringing, you had bad parents, you had a bad mom, you had a bad dad, you had a bad culture. And uh, because of that, you just see yourself poorly. And if you saw yourself rightly, you would do well. You would be good. Right? So the context here, again, there's no bad people. Only those who think badly about themselves. Okay, that's the thought. So the modern day mantra is this. And I remember going to a Peter Lowe seminar and there was one guy who was a sales expert. And he got up and he had everybody stand up. And everybody, 14,000 people stood up in this arena in downtown Nashville. And he got us all to say this. He got us all to yell this phrase. 
I am somebody. <laughs> so 14,000 people just started screaming, I am somebody. And then he had him say, I am good. <laughs> They're all going, everybody's going, I am good. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, I bet that guy over there who's having an affair on his wife, how do you think he's feeling about saying that? Or the guy that's not there connecting to his kids. You know, he's probably, doesn't matter what he tries to tell himself. The truth is, and his life tells him, you know what? I'm not that good. I'm really not that good. Right? But the world says, listen, say that. Believe that, that you're good. And so here's, here's what's interesting. It's the kind of phrase, I'm okay, you're okay. Right? Um, there's a survey that was a- asked people if they think they are important. It's interesting. You know, imagine taking a survey. Do you think you're important? In 1940, 11% of the women believed in America that they were important. 11%. So you go, oh my goodness. People had such a horrible self-image in 1940. Uh, 20% of the men thought they were important. Today... In 1995, 60, 66% of the women felt they were important. And 62% of the men felt they were important. So women went way up, and so did men, that women even think they're more important now than ever. Now the question is this. Has it helped our society? Think about it. Has it helped our society? From 1940 to 1995... Are we more of a, quote, more righteous culture? A more godly culture? That hasn't worked, has it? Uh, Teens, addictions, child abuse, marriage, racism. In other words, feeling better about ourselves does not make us live better. But that's a half-truth. Because I would tell you this, the Bible will say uh, the way to live better is, is not to think better about yourself, but to think rightly about yourself. And the way you do that is how God thinks about you. So the best way to come to grips with thinking is to think about yourself how God thinks of you. Not how you think of yourself. The Bible warns and says, do not think too highly of yourself as you ought. Right? But think of yourself with sound judgment. Okay, the second area where the culture says, okay, here's why we're losing, and that is because others are to blame. Others are to blame. You know, marriages, you know, the reason why a woman will complain about her marriage and the reason why it's not working is because of her husband. The reason why a husband will complain about his marriage and why it's not working is because of his wife. The reason why children don't like being children is because I have a bad dad or a bad mom. Or if this, then I would be happy. And so there's always this blame. Well, we know that uh, that has been uh, throughout ancient history as well. In fact, the first man and woman in the Bible, when confronted with the responsibility that they bore to be responsible before God, and God came and gave them an account to say, okay, how'd you do? You know, the guy says, listen, it's old apple breath over here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's her fault. And by the way, it's your fault because you gave her to me. And if you wouldn't have given her to me, I'd never been in this situation in the first place. Right? And then she says, well, it's the serpent. This, this bad thing. This, he deceived me. But I didn't. It's not my fault. Well, here's the thing. It's always somebody else's fault. Isn't it funny how we go into the default mode 
to blame when life didn't work out, especially in your marriage. Yeah. Um, I remember Micah, my second-born son. We were outside uh, raking up leaves one day, and it was in the fall. And and all of a sudden, I heard Micah just say, "Can somebody get me a drink?" And the only other guy around, Micah, was me. <laughs> and it was sort of like I see it within him. This, you know, what S- somebody needs to take care of me, right? And it's your job, Dad, to make me happy. And if you don't make me happy, I'm going to get mad at you. Right? I'm going to blame you. And so it's within the human experience to do that. Um, okay, so a third thing here. Why we are losing. See, the culture says it's because of the lack of education. The reason why we do bad things is because we're not educated enough. Uh, you know what's interesting about knowledge? In 1845 to 1945, uh, they've, they've uh, basically said this. From 1845 to 1945, so in 100 years, the amount of knowledge, and this thing's, it was illustrating the height of knowledge, the amount of knowledge that we gained in 100 years was 3 inches. From 1946 to 1976, 30 years, the amount of knowledge that we gained was the height of the Washington Monument. So we went from three inches to however tall that is. From 1976 to 2000, the height of knowledge, the amount of information we now know about things, is three and a half times the size of the Sears Tower. And so the question is, okay, are we more educated? Do we know more today? Yeah, sure we do. A question again though, are we living better? Are we living more nobly? Uh, If education was the key, then how about Ted Bundy? You know anything about him? He was a mass murderer. He killed numerous women. If If you ever read anything about him, he was a highly educated man. So if he had all the education, why did he do those bad things? Um... How about Adolf Hitler? He was a brilliant guy. And you know what he was? He believed a guy named Charles Darwin. In other words, Adolf Hitler was the world's most applied Darwinist. He truly believed in the law of natural selection. And he, and he went and killed the Jewish people because he believed that the Aryan race, his race, was superior. He truly believed it. No God, very educated. So how could this, quote, educated man do such horrific things if, he's, if he was born inherently good and he had, he had a great education? Um, somehow in the past, somewhere in the past, we begin to assume that if we were educated enough, we'll do what is right. You know, as a boy, we're taught to eat right, exercise, be good to others, manage our time, manage our anger. Here's the question. How are you doing? I mean, how many of you guys have been taught to eat right? I mean, I have. Exercise. Take care of your heart. Right? How about reading the Bible? Spending time with God? How many of of us know those are the things we ought to do? Do we do it? (laughs) You know, as one theologian once said, the hardest thing I find is not, not knowing what I should do. It's having the power to do what I ought to do. There's something in me 
that's void. Something is lacking. Some power that I miss to be able to do these things. What is that? Because education certainly isn't working. Uh, fourthly here, the culture says the reason why we're losing is because of government. Government isn't doing enough. And um, we've learned, for example, from welfare. How did that do with our culture? Did that help people live more nobly? Right? Uh, former Education Secretary Bill Bennett said this. He said, The last quarter of a century has taught politicians a hard and haunting lesson. There are intrinsic limits to what the state can do, particularly when it comes to imparting virtue and forging character. In other words, by giving somebody some money or food doesn't necessarily forge virtue and impart character, does it? But the government, there's a thought that the government can do that. Uh, and then finally here, E. Now, by the way, all these things, is it good to have a proper way to view yourself? Yes. Um, sometimes people are... Uh, responsible and need to be held responsible for their actions? Yeah, that's true. Half truth. Is education important? Absolutely. Um, is the government important? Sure. Are they half truths? Yes, but they are not the truth. Okay, the last half truth is defective genes. Defective genes. And so this is the argument here is the reason I do what I do is because I was born that way. That's the new one out there, right? Especially when it comes to immorality. Especially when it comes to the homosexual lifestyles. That's their big argument now. I was born to do these things. Well, I, here's my argument. I go, well, I was born to commit adultery. I, I had that within me, man. I could, you know, if, if, if I let myself go and do those things, I could do that in a second. Yeah, I'm born that way. In other words, we have propensities and we have birth propensities, sort of spiritual genetic propensities to go do things, right? I mean, you have to do them. It's a half-truth. But here's the argument. The problem, people say, when they use this excuse is, is they feel because I was born that way, that this way exonerates them from a particular lifestyle of immorality. So in other words, who are you to tell me that what I do is wrong because I'm born to do that? And again, the argument would be, Ted Bundy, I'm born to kill women. Is it okay for him to kill women? You see what I'm saying? It's, it's a silly argument. Uh, or uh, they want to be safe from a lifestyle of physical abuse of their body. Uh, cancer or something like that. Okay, so here's the, here's the thing then. If we are born to win, then why are we losing? There's five half-truths. There's truth in all of that, but that is not the full truth. So here's the question. What is the truth about why we do what we do? Well, these half-truths allow us to escape the, dig the deeper truth about why we do what we do and it inoculates us from really discovering why we are the way we are. See, these half-truths won't deliver us. They'll just keep us hopefully in despair. Because as long as, it, for example, if you're in your marriage and all you do is keep blaming your wife and hoping her to change... Your, your marriage will move hopefully toward despair. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? The people hope in despair. Believe in these half-truths. Bill Bennett goes on to say this, There is a disturbing reluctance in our time to talk seriously about spiritual matters. There is obviously a, an aversion to spiritual language by the political and intellectual elite classes. 
on why we do what we do, why bad things happen to good people. So let's discover this. Roman numeral two. Hidden truths behind uh, all of life's troubles. The hidden truths. Okay? Point A here talks about the difference between a nature versus nurture wound. Uh, This wound here, by contrast to the other wounds, has to do with your nature. The other ones have to do with your nurture. The other wounds, the nurture wounds, are wounds outside of you that have affected things inside of you. The nature wound is a wound that is inside of you, affecting the things outside of you. Are you with me? And that's the difference. Uh, for example, take a look, if you've got your Bibles, take a look at Romans chapter 7. And it's that famous passage where I think Paul speaks in a way that we all can relate to. And he says this, um, For we know that the law is spiritual, uh, 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I'd like to do. Anybody struggle with that? But I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, saying that it's good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, which that's contrary to the world, right? Because the world says, no, you're good. All of a sudden, the Apostle Paul said, there's nothing good dwelling in me. That is in my flesh, for the wishing is present, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But if I'm the one doing the very thing I don't wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Then I find the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wishes, to, uh, and the one who wishes to do good. He says this, But I see a different law lived out in the members of my body, waging war against my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched men that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And so there's sort of like this uh, war being waged inside your life, this battle. You know, it's sort of like the wolf illustration, right? It's like you got this wolf in your heart. and, And how you know... What path you're going to take is if you feed him or not. Because if you keep feeding the wolf, that's the way you go. But then you've got this different law, this different thing you can do, this choice you have to make. But here's the deal, guys. We're going to discover that the depravity wound is even deeper than your own choice. Because we're going to discover that you you are not even able to make that choice. Ultimately. And because of that, it says here in point B, we are all cursed with a condition known as total depravity. And I want you to notice here, the word is not deprived, it's depraved. It's not the absence of something, it is actually the corruption of something. Um, It's sort of like uh, in your car. If you drive your car and the wheels are out of alignment, you know, and you, and you, you take your hands off the wheel... Well, that car just goes, right? And it starts pulling its own way. In other words, each of us have in our nature a corruption that will drag us in a particular way that will take us down. Uh, Point C. 
The definition of this wound, we are all fallen and cursed creatures at odds by nature with our Creator. We are all fallen and cursed creatures at odds by nature with our Creator. See, the Bible doesn't say that we are born inherently good. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that we are born inherently evil. Flawed and defective at birth. That's what the Bible says. And uh, it's kind of like I tore my ACL, anterior cruciate ligament, my knee, back when I was 30. And once I tore that thing, you know, you couldn't see it. It kind of swelled up a little bit. But if I didn't fix it, my knee would always be unstable. And so what the culture says is, is listen, uh, to try to handle your instability, your character instability, the reason why you do bad things is they, they basically say, let's tape up the reason why you do bad things by education, by blaming others, by government, by having a better self-image. In other words, tape it up, but ultimately it will never cure the problem. The, the solution is I need an ACL replacement. I need a replacement. In the same way, guys, I'd say this. Remember we talked about, we pulled out of that thing, the black heart? Pike's showing the movie, there's, he's got a hole in his heart. We have a defective heart, a defective spiritual heart. And it needs to be renewed. It needs to be replaced. It needs to be, uh, to, in one sense, made new again. We'll talk about how that works. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says this about our spiritual heart. It says, The heart is deceitfully wicked. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of envy and insanity and in their hearts throughout, and it's in their hearts throughout their entire life. The Apostle Paul said this about his life, and he was an apostle. He said, I'm the chief of all sinners. There's no good thing that dwells within me. I'm the least of the brethren. And so he was talking about something in him that was inherently wicked, inherently evil. Okay, so understood, here's what it means. Understood it means, number one, I am separated from God at birth. I'm separated from God at birth. So in other words, um, and under His judgment, sorry, it's under His judgment. So because we've all started out life separated from God, if nothing changes, guys, we will stay separated from God. Are you with me? For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, We all are excluded at birth from the life of God. Excluded at birth. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, We are by nature children of wrath. All of us. Are you with me? So in other words, King David said, In my mother's womb, I was conceived. I was conceived in iniquity, brought forth in sin. So here's the thing. If nothing changes from the time you're born to the time you die, we're in trouble. We will, we will die separated from God. Are you with me? Um, number two here says, I have inherited a corrupt nature that no human agency can cure. I've inherited a corrupt nature that no human agency can, 
can cure. If you look at this little uh, chart here on U.S. News and World Report, it talks about the genetic Eve gets a uh, gets a genetic Adam, uh, and it really this is really not necessarily conclusive, but it is interesting that even in the secular world, even in science, they're discovering that uh, there is something within us that goes all the way back to what they call this genetic Eve, this one chromosome. In other words, we've all come from one. Uh, let me just read this here. Eighteen or eight years ago, researchers found the mother of all humans, the proverbial Eve. By peeking into the cells of several ethnic groups, they traced the family tree of modern humans back two hundred thousand years to a single, albeit the- theoretical woman, mitochondrial Eve, named for the part of the cell passed from the mother and examined in the study was hardly the only female human who was bearing children at the time, but scientists said her genes were the ones that endured. Now, Eve has an atom. Now, by the way, guys, this is secular stuff. This is not biblical stuff. Okay? Eve has an atom. In two reports in last week's Nature, researchers suggested that virtually all modern men, 99.9% of them, says one scientist, are closely related genetically and share genes with one male ancestor, dubbed Y-chromosome Adam. Unlike other chromosomes, Ys are passed strictly from father to son, thus enabling scientists to follow the human race patrilineally. Each study dates Adam differently. One says he appeared roughly 188,000 years ago. The other estimates he lived up to 49,000 years ago. But both... Buck the notion that modern humans emerged in disparate spots across continents. We are finding that humans are very, very shallow genetic roots which go back uh, very or rely on one ancestor, says the University of Arizona Michael Hammer. That indicates that there was an, an origin in a specific location on the globe and that it spread out from there. How do you like that? <laughs> Okay, So I just want you to see, guys, that uh, there is a lot going on in science today that would argue for the fact of the story of the Bible. Because the Bible is not a scientific book. But it's a book that tells how life began. Okay, so number three here. And, and here's what I'd say, guys. This genetic passing on. From the first man and the first woman, this genetic Adam, so to speak, but really the Adam of the Bible, when that man and that woman chose to go away from God, they became infected with this disease, greater than Ebola, greater than AIDS, and every child birth from their loins from that point on were genetically corrupted spiritually. Corrupted. Okay? And death, by the way, is a very unnatural process in the human experience. Isn't it? There's nothing fun about death. Isn't it funny? Right now, guys, how many of you think, when you lay your head down the night, how many of you go, you know what, I'm going to die? Probably not many of us. Right? Because really, as human beings, we live as though we're never going to die. The Bible says God said He turned in our hearts. In other words, we're created to live forever. And it's within us to live forever. 
But there's a, this unnatural process, this deterioration of the human body. And even uh, doctors and physiologists and people who are in that medical field, they don't understand why the, bio, the body dies. They say there are these free radicals roaming about in your body that create this oxidization and your body starts to harden, your bones harden, and your arteries harden. And Why? They don't know why. Because the body is regenerate, it regenerates itself. But even at birth, they've discovered at birth, the body starts to die. And you get to a place where, and most of us in this room are probably there, and you know it hits about, what, 30, 35, and all of a sudden you go... I just can't quite do what I used to do. And then you get to be about your mid-40s and your eyes start to... It, it, it starts to not work. You go, I need these dang glasses. Right? Paul said this, My outer body is decaying. My inner man is being what? Renewed day by day. So there's something that has to happen inside so that you don't die separated from God because this disease called sin will kill you. It's why our body dies. The reason why our body dies according to the Scripture is because of this sin. But there's a death that's greater than a physical death. It's an eternal death. And the Bible talks about that. Are you with me? And so, uh, point three here says, Then my corrupt nature corrupts my life and the lives of others with sin. And that's this sort of infectious disease that occurs. And we got it at birth. Every human being got it at birth from this mitochondrial Eve and genetic Adam. Which really the Bible would say is Adam and Eve. A literal person. Persons. Okay? Um, you ever heard somebody say, uh, my dad used to say all this time, he'd go, he'd see somebody go, I'll be damned. And I remember when I became a Christian, I'd go, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and me too, unless something happens to change the curse, this infectious disease. I need, I need an implant. I need something to change me. Because I'll be damned. Right? Glenn, you'll be using that one for a while, won't you? Okay, point E. The implications of this spiritual flaw. Uh, number one, total depravity requires a spiritual solution. Requires a spiritual solution. That only God, in His mercy, can give. In other words, total depravity requires a spiritual solution. Something outside of us needs to happen inside of us. Something needs to change. See, some of who I am, guys, is because of my nurture. But most of the reason why I am what I am and do what I do is because of my nature. And that's what I'm held accountable to by God. And that's why, number two says here, admitting my total depravity is the essential first step in finding an authentic relationship with God. Admitting my total depravity is the essential first step in finding an authentic relationship with God. You know, there are three things when people feel guilty, when they feel bad. Three things they do when they feel guilt. 
is they want to, to change God, change the requirements, right? And people do it every day. I don't think God is a just God. I don't think He's a judge. I think God's a God of love. I don't think He's that. So I'm going to change God. I'm going to make God into my own image to make me feel better about me. But that never helps, does it? The other thing people do is they go, they change requirements. It's not really 100% perfection to get into heaven. And you know, people who are lost outside the life of Christ, they will say this. Boy, I really have a problem with a guy who's never heard about Christ. Because if he's never heard about Christ, and the only way to get into heaven is through Christ, that doesn't seem fair to me. And I go, yeah, it doesn't seem fair to me either. And it's not. Because the requirement to get into heaven is not Christ. The requirement to get into heaven is you've got to be 100% perfect. Okay? Now we know that there's never been a man to do that. And if that's the requirement, every guy, whether he's heard about Christ or not, will stand before God and have to say, okay, God says, okay, how did you do? If they never heard about Christ, I'm going to be judging that. If they've never heard about the Ten Commandments and they heard about the law, I'm going to be judging that. God says this in Romans chapter 2. But you've come up with the law in your own heart, haven't you? In other words, you have a way of living that you think is right. Let's just take that moral compass that you've created in your own lifetime and I'm going to judge you by that. Then we'll just see how you do with that. And we know that even in that, men fall short. So in other words, there's not a guy that will stand before God and go, Yep, you got me. You got me. Are you with me? Now, Jesus is the only man, because He was the God-man, born of a virgin. He interrupted that spiritual genetic infection. Because that's why the virgin birth is so important. Because he didn't inherit it from Joseph. But he was born of this woman. But the seed of Mary was the seed of God. So he had a perfect birth. He lived a perfect life. He died a very unjust death. So that his blood could transfuse into you. (laughs) Pay for you. Purchase you. And make you new. So that you could have this sort of blood transfusion, so to speak. The blood of Christ does what with all of our sin according to Scripture? Cleanses us from all sin. Because we've got bad blood. Got it at birth. I'm sort of speaking metaphorically here, guys, to some extent. Okay? So so we understand it uh, to the degree that we can. So, the first thing then, the implications is, is it requires a spiritual solution. And secondly, admitting my total depravity... Oh, I, did I say that? Okay, great. Um, by the way, I, um, I had a friend of mine who recently was in a courtroom and was declared, and all the other people, by the judge to be forgiven of their debt, of their uh, penalty. And the reason why is the judge came out and he said, listen, the good people of Davis County are reelecting me and I have nobody opposing me and I'm feeling really good today, so I'm taking all of your uh, tickets and all your fines and I'm releasing you. 
And my friend was there and he said, everybody just started screaming. At first there was a shock, like, is he kidding? And then everybody realized when he was, he was really saying this, and it was true, because they had to bring all their tickets up and they just took them all. And he said, uh, one guy started uh, crying. One guy started quoting Psalms. One guy said, praise God! <laughs> you know? And here's the thing. This judge chose to have mercy, didn't he? So that was mercy. In other words, he let him off the hook. But here's what grace is. Grace would have been, if the judge would have said this, if he had said, hey, listen, the good people of Davidson County are going to reelect me, I'm going unopposed. In fact, they're giving me a salary increase. And with that increase, I'm going to pay all of your fines. In other words, I'm taking all your tickets and I'm going to hold you guilty for that, but I'm going to pay for all of them. Now that's called grace. That's grace. Okay? And so that's what we need. We need grace. With all of our sins, we need somebody to come and pay our fines, our sin. So, here's... It really happened. It really happened, yeah. In fact, it was in the paper, what, two weeks ago? Did you read about it? Yeah, really happened. Uh, three, pain that, pain that flows from the wound of the heart. Here's some of the stuff we feel. Number Point A, we are alienated from God. We are alienated from God uh, at birth. Now guys, isn't there a part, and I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know where any of you guys are. I know just because we go to church or have a religious mask, that doesn't make you a Christian. And you've heard the old phrase. Going to church makes you a Christian about as much as standing in a, in a garage makes you a car. It doesn't happen by osmosis, right? It doesn't happen by association. If your parents were Christians, doesn't mean you're a Christian. You still inherited at birth this spiritual flaw, this disease called sin, and you got it. And unless something happens inside of you, from the time you're born to the time you die, you will remain separated from God when you die. Something's got to happen inside of you. And church isn't going to do it for you. Now, is anything wrong with church? Absolutely not. But a lot of people today, especially in this culture, are going to church and they're not sure why. A lot of people in this culture are going to church because they're trying to upgrade their lives to be acceptable to God. I had one guy who told me one day, he said, uh, I was asking about what part God played in his life, and he says, well, you know, I just need to get closer to God. I says, well, I'm going to tell you, you can't do it. There's no way you can get closer to God. What you've got to do is allow God to get close to you. Because, listen, He's done for you what you can't do for yourself. And He wants to come and live inside of you. And listen, once you invite Him to do that and ask Him to forgive you for what, for what you've done because He did it on a cross and you receive that forgiveness and you invite Him to come and live in your life and give you a spiritual rebirth that the Bible says in John 1.13 is not by the will of flesh nor by man nor by blood but by God. And I told this guy, I said, listen, unless God comes into your life, when that happens, I'm telling you, you can't get any closer than that. Because once He comes into your life, 
You're as close as you're ever going to get. And at that point, He's going to take you with Him for all eternity. And so quit trying to religiousize your life. Give your life to Christ. Trust Christ. Give it up. Let Him come into your life. And He, and he will if, he, if you ask Him. So point B here goes on to say, we are subject to a life of futility. We are subject to a life of futility in this sin nature, this depravity wound. You know, there's an innate tendency to believe that performance of a man's pursuits will bring peace and happiness, isn't it? And we're taught at an early age, if I work my tail off and I'm good at something, that's going to make me happy. That's going to give me peace. And if I acquire a certain place or a certain position in life, then I will really feel good. Isn't that amazing? That's why I would say about you know the first car. You get your car. And you, remember you're a kid. You're thinking, man, if I get a car, man, I get my car. It'll be awesome. And you get your first car and it starts to break down. It starts to wear out. Or somebody hits you and you get dings in the door and... Then it just becomes another old car and then you realize that's life. There's a futility. You're subject to a life of futility. Nothing will ever satisfy. It's called a curse. There's only one who can. And see guys, what we're created to be is not just performance guys. We're created for a person. A person. We're created for a relationship with a person. And performance comes out of that relationship with that person. It's the person of God. Point C here, we are enslaved to a corrupt nature. We are enslaved to a corrupt nature. Um, let me give you a little illustration here. In fact, uh, let me just read a couple things. Just about this whole idea of the nature. Uh, Minnesota Crime Commission, just about the nature of children. Here's what they said. Minnesota Crime Commission, just about why crime happens. This is fascinating. Every baby, they say, and again, this is a secular culture. Every baby starts out a little savage. He is completely self-centered and selfish. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mom's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these things and he sees with rage and aggressiveness which, which would be murderous if he wasn't so helpless. He'd probably kill you to get your watch. <laughs> right? He is dirty. He has no morals. He has no knowledge. He has no skills. This means that all children, not just certain ones, are born delinquents. If permitted to continue in this self-centered style of living, he would grow up to be a thief, a murderer, and a rapist. Right? And some people do. Without, without constraints, they will do these things. And so there is a natural tendency for us to do this. Uh, let me give you another illustration about the self-destructive nature of sin that inflicts us. Uh, it's a story of an Eskimo. The way an Eskimo kills a wolf. You ever heard this? Uh, first, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood. This is by um, uh, Paul Harvey. tells this story. 
Uh, first, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. Could have done this in Canada, Glenn. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it. Tasting the fresh frozen blood, he begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blood until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the incident at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. See guys, here's the deal. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We have this appetite. We have this hole in our heart. We have black hearts. We have something within us that says, I'm created for something. So I'm going to try it here. I'm going to try it here. I'm going to try it here. I'm going to try it there. I'm going to try it here. I'm going to try it there. But you're subject to a life of futility. Things never will satisfy ultimately. And as Blaise Pascal said, every man has within him a God-shaped vacuum that only God Himself can fill. If you've ever opened a can of tennis balls, what happens? Because it's in a vacuum. And that's the human heart. God created in our heart a vacuum. And the only time it will ever be filled The only time it's ever really open is when you open it to God. You know, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open, I will come into you and dine with you and you with me. There is no other way. That's why admitting your total depravity is the first step. You should admit, I have a need. Yes? You say we're not... We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners because of sin. Is that what you're no, we are not. Um, we don't. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. By nature, we're sinners, and that's why we do what we do. In other words, we are at birth bad people. That's why we do bad things. So I could say this: We are not bad because we do bad things. Uh, we do bad things because we're bad. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, okay, and then D here. Uh, we are sentenced to death. How's that one sound? <laughs> we are sentenced to death. So we got this corrupt nature. We got a black hole in our heart. We got this emptiness. We got a vacuum, and we're subject to a life of futility. We're separated from God. We're alienated from God at birth. I'm telling you, we're in trouble, right? And uh, have you guys ever heard the term gospel? What's it mean? Yeah. You know why there's good news? Because there's bad news. Are you with me? The only reason why you'll... I always tell guys the hardest thing about a guy, quote, getting saved, to use the Baptist term, the hardest thing about a guy getting saved 
is getting him lost. Because when you get lost, when you know you're lost, getting saved is easy. But knowing you're lost, it takes a while. Sometimes it might be the very end of a guy's life and he lives a whole life of futility. Unfortunately. Some people do. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. I'm leaving you hanging. Uh, but um, we're going to talk more about this. And so some of you here have started a relationship with Christ. Maybe some of you haven't. If you haven't, listen guys, it's okay. Now's the time. Don't let another day go by. Okay? We'll wrestle with this stuff. Work with this stuff. But nonetheless, uh, we're going to leave you hanging here and uh, talk about, as a Christian, why it's important to understand this issue of depravity. And we're going to talk more about it. And we're going to go deeper in it. Because if, unless you know what you're made of on the inside, unless you know how fragile and frail you are, you will continue to trust in your nature. But when you come to grips thinking rightly about yourself, then you'll quit trusting in yourself and begin to trust in Christ, who now is in you. Okay? Because I don't know about you guys. I mean, I've been a Christian for 20 plus years now, and I feel I could do more today than I did when I first became a Christian. I feel the propensity to sin more today than I ever have in my life. Because, man, my nature is corrupt at the core. And I need God to save me. And He did. He saved me from the penalty of sin. But guys, I I need Him to save me every day from the presence of sin. Because if not, I I could crash in a second.